Hey, welcome Faith Community Church. It's great to have you here this morning. Good morning everyone that's joining us online as well. It's great to have you joining us in this way. We're glad that we can do this together this morning. I am just being reminded this morning uh, that you really never know what people have had to go through to get here today. So we, we have someone with a torn ACL out in the lobby. We got families coming in shifts just to get all the kids here. Rob has basically lost his voice. And look, you're here too. And we're really grateful because we believe that the Scripture teaches that when the church gathers in Jesus' name and under the authority of His Word, that He is there and that something unique is happening. So I'm really glad that you're here this morning. Okay? However you got here and in whatever state you are in, I'm really glad that you're here. So let me just pray for us before we start, okay? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Father in heaven, we are gathered in your name and under your authority as your people. And we ask that you would come and speak. Thank you for the promises of your word. Would you allow us to hear you this morning? In Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Hey. Well, we are continuing a series this morning called Transformed by Friends. And if this is your very first time at Faith Community Church, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We, had, we just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago uh, a series in the book of Galatians. And the message of that series was, there's only one gospel. It did not originate with us or any other human being. Therefore, we cannot add or contribute anything to it. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace that comes to us by faith in Jesus alone. And if we make our relationship with God dependent on anything other than faith, we are going to screw things up big time. It's going to become divisive, it's going to stir up pride, and it's just going to create a mess. And then in the last part of Galatians, we saw, this was the last week, just two weeks ago, Rather than adding a lot of external things to our lives to change us, we said the Spirit of God is God alive in us, and He is enough to change us. I even said, I believe this is a direct quote, the Holy Spirit is all that you need to be transformed. You don't need anything else. Do you remember that? Of course you do. It was a great sermon, right? I'm always having to remind you how great these sermons are. And this week, we're in a series called Transformed by Friends, which begs the question, what the heck? This is not a contradiction, but it is the beginning of the answer to the question, by what means does the Spirit of God change us from the inside out? What does the Spirit use to bring about that real, genuine, lasting inward change. And the list is very long. Uh, in fact, we could say confidently that the Holy Spirit uses everything to bring about that change in our lives. In the grace of God, nothing in your life gets wasted when you say yes to Jesus. So that includes your sin, history, your strengths, your weaknesses, uh, your suffering. Everything gets taken up by the grace of God and is forced to do you good when you enter into a relationship with Jesus. But there are a few indispensable means 
by which the Spirit changes us. One is the Scripture, because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. The other is prayer, because the Holy Spirit is what stirs up and creates prayer in our lives. And then the third is each other, because the Spirit of God lives in every single Christian. It's in our relationships with each other, then, that the Spirit of God changes us from the inside out. So someone suggested this week that the series should have been called Transformed by the Spirit Through Friends. That would have been really helpful before we made all the posters. But the video's made and the posters are, so this is what it is now, okay? Anyway, if you want to be changed from the inside out and to grow up into Christ, there's a particular kind of relationships that allow for faith to grow best. Now, we all know, you know, praise God, we all know people who have come from the worst possible circumstances whose faith is vibrant and robust and real. Uh, you know, the strongest trees sometimes grow in the rockiest soil, but that is not the goal. Has everybody got that? That is not the goal. You're not to make your family a super miserable place so your children just become the rocks of Gibraltar. The church is not to be a place where we pick and fight and all this other stuff to strengthen each other. Does everyone know that's not really the way it works? Can you say, yes, I know? That is not really the way things work. There's a particular kind of relationships, a particular kind of context that we're called as followers of Jesus to cultivate in our homes and in our friendships and here in our church. Last week we said then, one of the marks of that particular kind of community in which we change is joy in one another's presence. Because we believe in the gospel of grace alone, we are blown away when we meet another Christian, whatever their state may be. So that when we encounter, you know, brothers and sisters, we greet one another in church, we're just like, you're still here. Wow! That is what you made it through another week. I can't believe it. And me too. So we're just blown away by the work of God in each other's lives because we know that we're here by grace alone. I, you know, I've had this experience many times. I, I used to work with students at the university. Ten, eight years I spent there. Whenever I run into a, a student, now it's been 10 years, and they're still walking with the Lord, I really am blown away because I know so many who've walked away. So that's number one. When we... Uh, we want to be building, cultivating a place where we genuinely, because of what we believe about the gospel, when we meet each other, we are flabbergasted that you are still there <laughs> fighting the good fight. And this week, what we're, we're going to add to that is that the Spirit uses a particular kind of love, a steadfast, gritty, determined kind of love to change us. It's a kind of love that says, I've determined already to love you. I'm always going to be here for your good, and I'm with you to the end. That's what we're talking about today. I, I'm determined to love you no matter the cost. I am going to be for you no matter what, and I'm with you to the end. The word that the Bible uses to describe that kind of love is the Hebrew word chesed. <clears throat> Let me try. Chesed. There, there are not a ton of Hebrew words that every Christian should know. This is one of them. Chesed. Now we're in the Midwest, so we're just going to say 
chesed, okay? But let's just practice together so I know that you're awake. But just say, just you got to clear the throat a little. Don't do anything on the back of the person in front of you. Just, okay, just chesed. Oh, you guys are great. You guys are really, really good. Okay. Now, in our reading today, it's going to be translated the steadfast love of God. But this is interesting. There is no real English equivalent to chesed. In fact, I read one scholar this week who said, there is no single word in any language on the earth that is quite the equivalent of chesed. So when John Wycliffe and William Tyndale were translating the Bible into English 500 years ago, they called it mercy. Because chesed is this generous, gracious disposition that will not exact the vengeance that it could. On you. So just as an example, when Joshua sent spies into Jericho to scout the place out and Rahab protected them, knowing that her city was about to be destroyed, she asked them to remember her and show her chesed, mercy. The King James Bible then in 1621 came along and changed it to goodness. It's the goodness of the Lord because it's not just not exacting vengeance. It's actually an active seeking of your welfare and your good. So if you're familiar with the story of Jacob, for example, in the book of Genesis, Jacob was a mess. He had this whole thing going on with his dad who was super disappointed in him. He is fighting with everybody. He's a liar and a cheat. He's manipulative. He's fighting with everyone, including God. That's probably the main theme of his life. He's fighting with God. And in Genesis chapter 32, he finally runs out of rope. He's reflecting on all the ways that God has blessed him in spite of his issues. And he calls it chesed. You have shown me chesed. At the same time that the King James... I hope you like history, by the way. If you don't like history, we're not going to get along. Okay, so this is... The same time the King James Bible was being written, there was an English translation of the Psalms being created that actually created a word out of thin air to try to describe his said they called it the loving kindness of God because it's not just a disposition but there's feeling behind his said so they tried to capture that by taking love and kindness and just mashing them together in a brand new word the loving kindness of God has said feels strongly and it does good here are just a few more ways that modern translations of the Bible translate this. Some call it great loyalty, faithful love, faithfulness, loyal love, unfailing love, abounding in love, and we'll read today, steadfast love. I share all this to say, first of all, it's interesting. Okay, that's why I share it. But the second is, when you run into something which there's no word for in the world, you're probably looking at something from another world. And we're called to participate in that as God's people. Now, to teach you about this word, I want to take us to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It'll be on the screens, but you can also find it on page 74 in the Bibles in front of you if you want to follow along. Now, while you're finding it just a little more trivia, what we're about to read are the most quoted verses in the whole Bible. I don't mean like, 
You've probably never seen a football game with someone standing in the end zone that says, Exodus 34. That's not what I mean. I'm saying within the Bible itself, the biblical authors return to Exodus 34 more than 30 times. Okay? So it's the most quoted or alluded to scripture in the Bible. And it's probably because this is the first time that we're given a list of God's attributes. So Exodus is the second book of the Bible. So far, we've seen God doing a lot of things. God has been described in a lot of different ways. But this is God describing his own character to Moses. And one of his attributes is his said. Here's what it says. We're going we're to start in verse 5. Here's what he says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in chesed and faithfulness, keeping chesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this other worldly love that all of our languages struggle to describe is a core attribute of God. In fact, of the five attributes here, it's the only one that's repeated twice. And because it's so hard to wrap our minds around, the best way to describe his said is just to show you how the Bible uses it. So keep your finger in Exodus 34, but we're going to move around a whole bunch. If you want to try to keep up, that's fine, but you don't need to. You just need to listen really well. Here's one thing you would see if you just scrolled through all 245 times this word is used. Hesed is a decision that God has made about his people. Hesed is a love that says, I have made up my mind about you. And I'm determined to love you no matter what. Here's one example from Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 10. In the Old Testament, Israel and God went through a breakup. It's called the exile. And Israel had been so completely unfaithful in their relationship with God, they had completely broken his heart, and he left them for a while. And they're left with the question, well, what does God really think of us now? How does he feel about us? And here in Isaiah... He addresses that before the breakup even happens. Here's what he says. This is Isaiah 54, starting in verse 4. He says, fear not. Verse 5, for your maker is your husband. Verse 7, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, chesed, I will have compassion on you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, chesed, will not depart from you, and my covenant shall never be removed. In other words, even though I've left, my mind is still made up about you. Part of the reason that love is just an inadequate word for translating this is that in our context, love is generally associated, I would say almost universally associated, with a feeling, and especially with sexual and romantic desire, which wanders all over the place. It's almost the exact opposite of his said. 
So translators add all these things like faithful love, loyal love, steadfast love, everlasting love, and things like that. Because Hesed is a decision about who we will be in the future. When you got married, if you're married, in your vows, you were talking about who you would be in the future. That is Hesed. That does not mean that Hesed is devoid of feeling. You can see it in Isaiah and all over the place. God feels strongly about His people. He loves them. He's moved with compassion for them. That's just right there in Isaiah. But sometimes Hesed will move against its own feelings. Just in the passage we read, God has overflowing anger toward Israel. Verse 8. Has anyone ever been overwhelmingly angry with your spouse? Don't raise your hand. With your spouse or a friend or your church or whatever. You've experienced overwhelming anger. So does God. But he says in verse 10, my steadfast love, my chesed will never leave you. I have already made up my mind what to do about you when you break my heart. This is great news. That the love of God for you is not dependent on how well you do. Here's another example from Deuteronomy 7. I think, uh, starting in verse 6. He says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Do you hear the feeling? His treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. I love you because I promised to love you. That is it. And then he alludes to Exodus 34. Know therefore the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and has said with those who love him and keep his commandment to a thousand generations. Why does this matter so much? Because this is a spiritual principle, okay? This is a spiritual principle. If you want to grow, if you want to change, and if you want to mature, you have to be honest and be known. It's just like a law, okay? You have to be honest and be known. Jesus calls it coming into the light. John calls it walking in the light. It is the opposite, Jesus says, of loving darkness. If you, are, if you love darkness, it's because your works are evil. And who wants to bring that into the light and be really known? But Jesus says we have to bring ourselves into the light or it will kill us. The darkness will kill us. Well, how much easier is that to do in a context of chesed, where the people around you have already made up their mind about you? Where the people around you love you because they promise to, not because you fit. Last week, Tim Porter shared a story about a time in his life when he was feeling completely run over by the world. Do you remember this? And his wife, DJ, said to him, I am with you. I am for you. I still believe in you. What if she had said, I am sorry, but this is not what I signed up for. I married strong, independent football porter. <laughs> not whatever you've just become. That, how would that, he said, How's that, how would that go? Anyway, it's right there. 
well, this is the kind of church we want to be. These are the kinds of families that we want to cultivate together and the kinds of friendships we want to foster, that when people walk into our missional communities or our campus ministries or whatever, they meet people who've already made up their minds about them. Isn't that how it is in your family? You loved your kids before you met them. When you found out you were pregnant, you made a decision already before you adopted them. Before you even knew their names, you had already made a decision about who you would be in the future to them. That's Hasid. We believe in the gospel of salvation by grace alone, and so when we see each other, we are overjoyed. We also believe in the absolute depravity and nastiness of men. So that when people bring their baggage into the light, we say, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm not going to leave. I know I've already decided what to do. The thing about living in the dark is that you, you begin to get to this place where you assume you're the only person this bad. Like everybody else around you looks so like normal, right? And put together, you come to church and... Look, they like each other. Those people, everybody likes each other. Everyone's smiling and happy. And you, you start to think, I must be the only person that's ever dealt with. It's never true. It's never true. And then you finally confide in someone and they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, my wife and I went through that. My, my husband and I went through that. We're still dealing with, you know, and here's how the gospel is ministering to us and helping us to love one another. Has said, says to each other with the Lord, My steadfast love will never leave you. Isaiah 54, I'm with you. I love you because I promised to love you, and that's it. Even before I met you, before you walked into my missional community, I had already made up my mind about you. And I'm with you to, to the end. The other thing about has said is that it's also committed to goodness and righteousness and justice all the time. So, this has to be said because some of us will hear, uh, my steadfast love shall not depart from you, or I love you because I promise to love you. Some of us will hear that through the filter of our present cultural moment. So, love is almost universally regarded as a feeling. It is also uh, universally understood to be completely devoid of any judgment or discernment. It's a misunderstanding of the New Testament teaching about judgment. Everywhere we are told that love will only affirm, affirm, affirm. And if you will not affirm everything, you are a hateful person. Well, that is a wicked lie. Chesed is an unshakable decision to love and a commitment to goodness, righteousness, and justice. It says to the one it loves, I will do what is best for you, whatever it costs me. I will do it. Let's look again at Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Okay, most quoted scripture in the whole Bible, and there's a tremendous tension between verses 6 and 7. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hesed and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yes, 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 come on. These are the God goodies. This is what we love to hear about. And then, 
but will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Mm. Mm. So this is God's first description of his own attributes, and he's letting us know he's a God of mercy, compassion, patience, faithfulness, with an unswerving commitment to justice and righteousness at the same time. Now, we feel that as a tension. It is not a tension for God. Verse 7, this is practically, well, it is. This is the same sentence. Keeping love for thousands, forgiving sin, I will by no means clear the guilty. <laughs> what is this teaching about God, and what does it look like for our relationships? Number one, what Exodus 34 is teaching, what God is saying is that he will never change. That's the point. He will never change. So one misunderstanding of these verses has given rise to the idea of generational sin or generational curses. That there's some kind of divine judgment that will hang over families so that bad stuff happens to future generations because you screwed up. I can see, absolutely, I can see how you would get there from this passage. And there are stories in the Bible that would seem to indicate the same thing. Like, so Solomon, you know, blew up his life, essentially, and God said to him, this is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to exact my vengeance on you, but this is what's going to happen to your son. The problem is that that, contra, you know, the principle contradicts things like Ezekiel 18.20 that says children will not be punished for the sins of their fathers. And it just doesn't jive with what we see through the whole Bible. The Bible is full of kids and grandkids with really screwed up parents and grandparents who are great, whose lives are blessed and free. So Joseph would be a primary example of this. What Joseph experienced were the consequences of his father's sin, for sure. But he wasn't under any kind of curse in fact, quite the opposite. He wasn't being punished for what Jacob did. God was actually redeeming what Jacob did in Joseph's life. And there are hundreds of stories like that. Samuel would be an example in the opposite direction. Samuel's like this uber-godly man. His kids are total screw-ups. Okay? So what, what this is teaching is that every generation will have the opportunity to respond to God on their own terms. I say that because everywhere else in the Bible, that's how the authors understood Exodus 34. What they heard God saying is, I will not change. In contrast to the pantheon of gods that surrounded the nation of Israel, whose blessing and cursing seemed rather arbitrary, God is saying, I will not change for your children or your children's children or your children's children's children to the third and fourth generation. The theologians call this the aseity of God. I learned that word this week, and now I'm going to share it with you. The aseity of God. God is unchanging and unchangeable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And every generation gets to decide how they're going to respond to God, knowing beforehand how he will respond. Let me show you just one place, okay? This is from... Exodus chapter 20, okay? Exodus chapter 20 is before Exodus 34, and so it helps us understand what God is saying later. 
He says, you shall not bow down to idols or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love has said to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Each generation gets to decide whether they will love God or hate God on their own terms, and God has already let us know how he will respond to them. What about those two or three stories in the Bible where God changes his mind? Yes, that's exactly what he said he would do. He's, he's promised if you will love him, he'll change his mind about you. See? So he doesn't change. He's told us what to expect based on how we respond to him. What's the other message here? Well, the other message is God is telling us that his hand is on the scale, so to speak, for us. Hesed is absolutely committed to righteousness and justice and accountability, but God is letting us know, I have put my hand on the scale. And all you need to do is lean on me a little bit, and I will give you mercy. Let's look at it, look at it again, okay? Exodus 34, verse 6. We're going to beat this to death, okay? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping chesed for thousands. And then does anyone see a little letter there, a tiny little letter? Then you go down to the bottom of your page and you'll see it says, to the thousandth generation. That's what it's talking about. This is an idiom. Does anyone know what an idiom is? Not an idiot, an idiom. An idiom is, it's a phrase that everybody just would have known, they would have recognized. So if I say to you, three and out, what game am I talking about? Uh, let's try this again. <laughs> if I say three and out, what game am I talking about? Football, that's right. You know that because you're Americans. In America, we play football. What team am I talking about? Just kidding. <laughs> See? He said it. I mean, Okay. What, what he said, what he said, everyone would have understood. God is saying, if you love me, I will keep faithfulness for a thousand generations, 40,000 years. That's the other reason that the idea of a divine curse hanging over your family wouldn't work. All you would need is one faithful person somewhere in your history, and you're good to go. That is not the point here. He is letting Israel know, I am ready to show you mercy to a thousand generations. This is what I want to do. This is what I desire to do for you. If you would just turn, if you would just look to me, I will forgive and I will never be any different. There's never going to come a time. There's no, there's no point in history coming when God is going to say to a person seeking his face, I, I know. I just, I'm worn out. No. No mercy. Bank is closed. It's never going to happen. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible. When is it quoted? When Israel sins, someone will say to God, God, you said you would forgive iniquity and not leave the guilty unpunished. So forgive. They know what he's saying. 
They know if they will just push him, God is ready. <laughs> it sounds, I'm not sure if this is theologically right, okay? So just, this is what I think it's saying. It's saying, you go home and think about this, okay? Because I don't know. I think it's teaching God is a bit of a pushover when it comes to his people. And he wants to forgive if you would just turn. The elders can come and talk to me about that afterward. <laughs> so that's not the word of the Lord. That's just what I, that's the impression. He's just waiting for you. When Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh, like the most wicked, evil, oppressive, nasty city in the world, and they repent, Jonah gets super angry, and he quotes Exodus 34, and he said, this is why I didn't want to come. I knew what you would do. I knew they would, you know, if they just leaned a little into your mercy, you would cancel the whole kill them program, and that's what I wanted. They understand this is how the Israelites understood what God is saying here. The parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 is a beautiful picture of chesed love. Chesed lets people go sometimes. It, 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 it lets people go. It allows people to experience the consequences of what they're doing. Sometimes chesed has to leave the way that God left Israel, but it is always watching the road. It is always ready to forgive, and it is saying, I will always be for you. I am always ready for you. I am always waiting for you. And we are to be those kinds of people for each other as well. There is nothing loving about affirming what God does not affirm. You may have to leave your husband. You may have to let your child go. Churches have to practice discipline among their members, but we are always watching the road together. When will they come home? And as soon as they do, we've already answered the question of what we'll do. Last thing then, chesed is ready to go as far as it needs to, to death and even beyond. The classic, classic picture of chesed love in the Old Testament is the story of Ruth. Ruth said to her mother-in-law, who was completely destitute and could offer her nothing, she said to her, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. And when Israel saw what she did, they call it chesed. When Jacob is dying, he asks Joseph to promise him that he will carry his bones back to the promised land and bury him with his father. And Joseph does it. Jacob wouldn't know if he'd kept his promise. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of miles on foot bearing the bones of your father. His father's never going to know about it. He can never repay him. But Genesis calls what he did chesed. David's devotion to Jonathan was chesed. Even though it cost them, even though their lives were at stake, they loved one another. The Bible calls it chesed. 
David's devotion to Jonathan's descendants long after Jonathan was dead and could never repay him, the Bible calls it hesed. There are dozens of examples like this. Hesed is saying to one another, I am determined to love you no matter what. I am always for you and I will always want what is best for you and I am with you to the end and beyond. Hesed is an everlasting love. It's a love that even death cannot break. There's a, you know, as the story of the Old Testament progresses, people like Abraham and David uh, and some of the prophets, they, they begin to say, death cannot be the end here of my relationship with God. There has to be something after that because his love is hesed. Nothing will break it. So how could death break it? And the, the primary tension in Exodus 34, the same sentence is, I will forgive iniquity and I will never clear the guilty. And for 2,000 years, nobody really resolves the problem. Leviticus is the beginning of the answer, but David and uh, Moses and the prophets understood the blood of bulls and goats and burnt offerings cannot possibly actually pay for what we've done. God has to actually make us not guilty somehow. He has to justify sinners somehow. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, John chapter 13 begins this way. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own, what does it say? Do you know? He loved them to the end. The end of what? Well, through the confusion of that evening, through betrayal, through disappointment, through his trial, through his beating, through his crucifixion, through death, he loved them to the end of all things. And we are to do likewise. In, in John chapter 13, verse 34, then Jesus says to us, you are to love one another as I have loved you. And everyone will know you belong to me. With a chesed love. Let's pray. Would you take a moment right now to pray for yourself? Actually, you know what? Take a moment right now and give thanks for the love of God that keeps you and called you. Now, would you take a moment to pray for yourself and ask that God would work through the gospel, said love, in your life. Is there anyone in your life that you know you are not loving as God has called you to love? I want you to pray about that right now. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would make us a people whose family and friendships and church look this way. 
teach us how to say to each other, I am determined to love you no matter what. I will always want what is best for you and I am with you to the end. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Everyone said, amen. Let's stand and sing together.